Amen. Why don't we start this evening in Mark chapter 16. I've, uh, I really don't have a message to preach, but I've got some things that are stirring in my heart. So um, we'll just start off and see where the Holy Ghost takes us. Mark chapter 16, Jesus has uh, just been raised from the dead and, and uh, he's commissioning his uh, disciples. Um, this is Mark's account of Matthew 28 that's uh, usually known as the Great Commission. Mark goes into a little bit more detail about uh, what to expect. And notice it says, beginning in verse 15, it said, Jesus said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized, baptism is not, he's not talking about water baptism there. He's talking about baptized into Christ. In other words, accepts the teaching that Jesus died for the sins of the world. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now let me ask you a question. Seeing verse 17 where it says, and these signs shall follow them that believe. You can look at that, look that verse up in any and every other translation you want to. And it always says something to the same effect. One translation says, these signs shall follow the believing ones. I like that. Other translations say, these uh, signs shall follow those that trust. One translation says, these signs shall follow them that believe in these things. Meaning the things that Jesus is saying. But in, in every translation you look at in every version of this uh, verse 17 that you could possibly find you cannot find one that indicates in any form whatsoever not even the implication that these signs shall follow you 12 because you're a special bunch not one so why do we assign special power to the apostles why does the church assume that the apostles had special power and therefore did special works that nobody else is going to do a valid question isn't it i mean that's what uh, most denominations teach and that's the the number one i guess i would estimate to be the number one or main reason why many groups say that healing has been done away with and miracles don't, don't work now like they did in jesus day or in the early days of the church and or the days of the early church i should say not that there's two churches there are different time periods of the same church but the early church is known for miracles the early church is known for healings. The early church is known for casting out devils. The early church is known for a lot of things. They spoke with tongues. I've always been amazed at people that speak against speaking in tongues, and yet they use scripture that was written by people that talked in tongues. You do realize that everybody that wrote in the New Testament was spirit-filled, don't you? You realize that every verse of scripture that people try to use to discount the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues was written by people that spoke in tongues. Well, why do we assign either special power to the early part of the church or, the, or specifically the apostles when Jesus said, these signs shall follow those that believe in my name? Would the lack of power in the modern day church not be indicted by this verse of scripture as not believing in his name? Rather than just living at the wrong time period or not being called to be an apostle? Notice it says, and these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. Notice it doesn't say they'll pray and God will cast out devils. Notice it does not say if you've got a special ministry, then devils will release, be released from their, their hold on people's lives. It said they shall cast out devils. They. Now, who is they refer to? Does it refer to a work of God or does it refer to something that the individual is doing? It refers to a work of the believing one. Now, you know as well as I do that no human being has the power to cast out devils in and of themselves. Yet Jesus is commissioning the church that started with the apostles. He's commissioning the church, not just the apostles, but the believing ones. He could very well have said, and these signs shall follow those that, have called, that are called to be apostles. He could have even said, these signs shall follow the apostles of the Lamb. Because that's a select group. But he said, these signs shall follow those that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. He's indicating the work is done by the individual, not by God. Now, we know that God has to be the power behind the work or else it's not going to get done. But Jesus didn't seem to hold back and, and, uh, and be concerned about identifying that the individual is supposed to do the work. Are you out there? 
These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Number one, they shall cast out devils. Number two, they shall speak with new tongues. We talked about this a little bit this morning, and this is what got me started on this, this uh, series that I'm doing on Sunday mornings about uh, spiritual dominion. God's really been dealing with my heart about some things, and, and, uh, and I'm starting to see some stuff. And I, I, uh, I hope the, the series is a blessing to other people, but I'm really teaching it for me. And I feel like that same thing about this service tonight because there are things that the Lord is trying to get me to see. Now, it'd be a whole lot easier, and, I, and, and in some ways, I wish he had just opened my eyes instantly, and then I could act like I've known it all along. But that's not always the way it works. But I'm just like you. I see things as I go. The more I feed on the Word, the more I meditate on the Word, the more the Word sinks down and becomes a part of me, and the more my eyes are opened. Now, here where it says, another sign that will follow a believing one is that they will speak with new tongues. Those of us that are filled with the Spirit, we don't have any problem with that. We don't have any problems with saying, yeah, we speak with tongues. We may be embarrassed in certain circles to do it, or at least some people are. But we don't have any hesitation whatsoever to say, yeah, we speak with tongues. Well, then why don't we say, yeah, we cast out devils. Another thing he said, another sign he said would follow the believing ones is they would take up serpents. I mentioned this this morning. Forgive me for the repetition, but not everybody was here. The word take up literally means to lift up as an anchor so a ship can sail away. He's talking about freeing somebody from the bondage of Satan. Freeing somebody from the bondage of serpent, which represents Satan's power. Freeing someone, lifting up their anchor, the anchor that the devil has bound them with so that they can sail away free into what God has for their life. That's the word picture behind this, uh, this phrase. It has nothing to do with handling snakes. It has everything to do with breaking the power of the devil over other people's lives. They shall take up serpents. They shall lift. They, they, they. It does not say they'll pray and God will do it. It says they shall take up serpents. And Jesus said it's a sign of being a believing one. He didn't say it's a sign of being saved. He said it's a sign of believing in his name. The fourth fourth sign that he mentions... If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. That's talking about divine protection. He's not talking about testing God, trying to see if something's going to work or proving something one way or another. He's saying there is divine protection. You get yourself into a situation where where it's uh, harmful to your life, and God will see you through it. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And finally, the fifth sign is they shall lay hands on the sick, and they, the sick... The believing ones shall lay hands on the sick, and they, the sick, shall recover. Notice, they're the ones to lay hands on the sick, and the sick recover. Can you see that? Turn with me over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Here's a verse of scripture that we're all familiar with in Luke 10, 19, where the 70 returned with joy from the, the ministry trip that Jesus sent them on. And they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us. Through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He's not saying that happened at the moment that they tried to cast out devils. He's saying this is why it works. is because Satan is a defeated foe. Satan was cast out of heaven when he rebelled against God. The only weapon he has to operate by here on the earth is deception. That's why Paul kept praying for the church's eyes to be opened. So that we wouldn't be deceived anymore about who we are and who he is. He, the devil, is. Well, if our eyes could be opened and we could see the devil for who he really is, you'd never have another devil problem in your life. The Bible says that when we finally look on him, we'll look on him narrowly and say, is this the guy that caused all the problem? We'll be shocked. Well, then why does so much of the church have faith in the devil's power? Because they don't see clearly who he really is. And they don't see clearly who they really are in Christ Jesus. So what does Paul do? Paul prays constantly that people's eyes, that Christians' eyes will be open to the truth of who they are, who God is, and who the devil is. So they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus said, yeah, the devil's been defeated for a long time. That's my paraphrase, but that's basically what he's saying. I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power. Literally, this word power is the word authority. Two words used here, two, uh, two words translated power. They're two different words. The first word is authority, meaning privilege of ability or delegated power. The second word power means ability. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. What does that mean? Well, he identifies it and over all the power of the enemy. 
Well, over and over all the power of the enemy includes the treading on serpents and scorpions, which must be part of the devil's power. I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now back up with me to verse 8. Here's Jesus sending out the the 70. We won't read through the whole thing. It'd be good to to do it, but we don't want to do it for the sake of time. But notice in verse 8, here's part of what they're commissioned to do. If you look in these previous verses, beginning in verse 1 all the way down through verse uh, 19, or verse 18, you'll find out that Jesus doesn't say one word about casting out devils. That's why they seem to be, uh, I don't know if surprise is a good way to say it, but they identify specifically, delineate the fact that even the devils are subject unto us through your name. Because you didn't say anything about casting out devils. But we found out your name works even there. Keep that in mind. What were they commissioned to do? Notice what Jesus said in verse 8. He said, into whatsoever city you enter and, and they receive you. Please notice that phrase. This is the key phrase, and they receive you. It's their choice. Whatsoever city you go, they were commissioned to go two by two into every city that Jesus would finally get to. And so they were to go to tell people Jesus is coming. They were free to tell him that they believed he was the Messiah. They were free to tell him about the signs and wonders and miracles that they had beheld and witnessed. They were free to tell him any of those things they wanted to. But they said, in whatsoever city you go, and they receive you. Eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein. And say unto them, the kingdom of God is coming to you. Two points. Number one, healing's got to be a part of the kingdom of God, or else he wouldn't say, connected with healing the sick, tell them the kingdom of God has come. Healing has to be a part of the kingdom of God, because that's what Jesus said, say to them when you heal them. Well, when did healing stop being part of the kingdom of God? These are not the 12. These are not the apostles of the Lamb. These are the 70. And Jesus hadn't even been risen from the dead yet. He's not even raised from the dead, not resurrected. These guys are working on the old covenant blessings of Abraham as commissioned by Jesus. Now, this didn't work for them, apparently, but before Jesus commissioned them. But once he commissions them, it starts to work. And he says to them, whatsoever city you enter into, and if they receive you, heal the sick. He does not say pray and God will heal the sick. He said, heal the sick. I want you to understand, and I want to say this as clearly as I can. They, the 70, had healing power. Now, the power wasn't of themselves. Once Jesus said, once he commissioned them and said, whatsoever city you go into, if they receive you, heal the sick. They didn't have any more power then than what they had before. They are simply being delegated there is power or authority literally authority not ability but authority privilege that has been delegated to them because jesus is commissioning them i wonder if they felt anything when jesus said it it might have caught them by surprise and said wow we've been watching jesus do this he's saying we can do it now but i'll guarantee you not a one of them felt anything physically heavenly commissions don't make you feel differently in physical form or in your physical body. Commissions from heaven are spirit, not flesh. So they didn't feel anything. But notice what it's going to accomplish. He said, you heal the sick. If they'll receive you, the city you go to, if they'll receive you, some won't. But if they'll receive you, say to, or say to them, the kingdom of God is coming to you as you heal the sick. Now, what if they won't receive? Well, he tells that part too. Verse 10, but whatsoever city you enter into, if they receive you not, go your way out of the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of the city which cleaves on us, we do wipe off against you, notwithstanding be you sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. In other words, I'll paraphrase this again for myself, for your benefit, if you get any benefit out of it. He's saying, wipe the dust of your feet of that city off against them and tell them, We take nothing from you, but know this, even though you didn't get any healing power in evidence here in your city, the healing power of God, which is part of the kingdom of God, was here available to help whoever needed it. You're the ones that refused it. It's not us. 
And they do just exactly that. And they come back and they say, Lord, even the devils are subject to unto us in your name. Why didn't they come back saying, wow, this healing stuff really works? Did the healing not work? Of course it worked. It worked just the way Jesus said. What drew their attention is the fact that it worked in an area where Jesus didn't say that it would work. Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Even the devils. What does that mean? That means sickness is subject unto us in your name. We found that out, but you told us about that. But we found out that it worked even in something you didn't say, and that is we had authority in your name over the devils too. Can you see that? They had healing authority. Why? Because they were commissioned by Jesus to do a work. Why did Jesus say in Mark chapter 16 that we looked at first, these signs shall follow the believing ones? Because he's commissioning them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He's saying very simply this, wherever you preach the word, these signs will follow. Wherever you preach the word, these signs will follow. Wherever you preach the word, these signs will follow. As a matter of fact, let me turn back to Mark chapter 16 and read verse 20. The last verse of the chapter. Well, I'll read verse 19 and 20. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, commissioned them, in other words, gave them a spiritual commission, spiritual work to do. After the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. If you've got a King James, you'll notice the word them is in italics. That means the translators added it. That's not in the original. The original is, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with and confirming the word. He worked with them in a general sense, but specifically he worked with the word. Just like he did through the 70. Whatsoever city you go into, if they receive you, heal the sick. Notice Jesus did not say, go into all the world and preach the gospel unto every creature. And because I'm giving you a special assignment, because I'm giving you a special anointing, these signs shall follow each one of you. No, it didn't work like that. It works for all those who are commissioned by the Lord to do the work of telling other people about Jesus. And it says, these signs will follow those believing ones. And the Lord, wherever you go, wherever they went, and remember, this is for believing ones, not just for the twelve. For the believing ones, they went forth everywhere, the Lord working with and confirming the word with signs following. In other words, with healings, with devils being cast out, with people speaking with new tongues, with taking up serpents, lifting up the bondage of the enemy away so other people could walk in freedom. And divine protection when it was needed to. The Lord working with and confirming the word with signs following. Turn back with me to um, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Here's the story where the guy brings his son to Jesus. He's oppressed by the devil. The son is. We'll start in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. I think they're all dumb, but I think this one means that he was keeping him from talking. You'll get that later. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away, and I spake to thy disciples, that they should cast him out, and they could not. Notice the father came expecting the disciples to be able to do something, and they weren't able to do it. They did not come saying, pray so that God would cast the devil out of this boy. They're not looking for somebody else to do it other than the disciples. Now, if the disciples don't have a reputation for doing this kind of stuff, why would anybody be bringing them to it? Folks, I can show you the majority of churches in America that you wouldn't take somebody that was demonically oppressed to because there is no reputation that they can do anything for them. Why would they bring, why would the father bring this boy? And I believe he was bringing him to Jesus, but found out Jesus wasn't there. But that was okay. The father still said, well, all right, 
wanted Jesus, always liked to work from the top down, but if he's not here, then you guys cast it out. And they couldn't. Please notice, folks. The father asked them, them to cast the devil out, and they, the disciples, could not. Are you with me? Keep reading. Jesus answered him. Him means the father, the ones that's doing the talking, not the disciples. He answered him, the father, and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. If Jesus is saying that the disciples are without faith, then he would have answered the father, I am so sorry. I'm doing my best to put the right things into these guys, but I'm limited by the material that I've got to work with. He didn't. He answered the father and said, O faithless generation. Who is Jesus identifying as being faithless? The father. And we'll find out that the disciples' faith had something to do with it too. Or lack of faith, their unbelief, had something to do with it too. But Jesus does not say, he doesn't even say, wow, I've got unbelief coming at me from every side here. Not only are you, the Father, in unbelief, but the disciples are in unbelief too. Lord, deliver me from all this mess. Came to the earth, did the best I could, but look at what the results are. Nope. Jesus recognizes that the problem is the Father's faithlessness. Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. He's talking to the Father. It's the only one he could be speaking of. Because it's the only one he's talking to. And they brought him unto him. Brought the boy unto Jesus. And when the boy saw Jesus. Straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground. And wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father. How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child. The father continues to speak in verse 22. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire. And into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. Please notice the phrase, if you can do anything. Folks, have you ever known anybody to receive anything from God by saying, if you can do anything, Father? I would submit to you that that is the textbook definition of what unbelief sounds like. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Faith begins where the will of God is known. If you don't know what the will of God is, if you don't know what God can and will do, it's impossible to have faith, which is why so many Christians are walking around sick because they don't know, number one, if God can heal them in their situation, or two, if God will heal them. Now, can usually and is, a, is a religious accepting point, most religions, or denominations, I should say, accept uh, that God can do anything. Because the Bible says, with God, all things are possible. So, yeah, sure, God can do anything. But that is a meaningless phrase. Because they don't believe for a moment that God will do it unless he has something special in mind. Well, then, what would that mean? Wouldn't that mean that God's will is different at one point in time or for one person than it is for somebody else? Now, folks, no matter how you slice or dice that up, that would mean, therefore, that God had to be a respecter of persons. If that's the way he works, then that would have to mean that God is a respecter of persons. And the Bible says he's not. So either people's idea of how God wills to heal is different than the way it really is, or the Bible's a lie and we need to throw it away and quit trying to believe it. I know that sounds harsh to some people, but hey, if it's not true, what are we messing around with it for? I'm not willing to accept that part of it's true and part of it's not true. Because who is going to be able to decide? Who's going to be the one in authority to decide, well, this part's true, but this part's not? That's what denominations are doing with folks. They're saying, yeah, well, the Bible says that Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, but that doesn't mean physical sickness. That means he healed us spiritually, whatever in the world that's supposed to mean. You never see Jesus going up to somebody and say, I see you're sick spiritually. Be healed. It's not the way it works, folks. 
So which way is it? Is God's will concerning healing different for one person than it is for another person? Or different at one point in time than it is at a different other, another point in time? No, it is not. If that is the case, then God changes when the Bible says he doesn't. Are you out there? So here's the father, the father, not the disciples. The father is saying, here's the situation. It's been this way since he was a young boy. Jesus seems to have picked up on something. We don't know to what degree he knows it, whether it's a, a gift of uh, the word of knowledge and operation, the spiritual manifestation or something. Maybe he just senses something in his heart. He knows the problem. If it's not working, he knows the problem is unbelief. It's always unbelief if it's not working. The disciples may not know that yet. Jesus does. So what does he do? He asks the father, when he sees the circumstance of the son, the evil spirit throwing him down in front of Jesus, he asks the father, how long has it been this way? Why? Because he must be assuming, he must be thinking, you've been watching this for a long time, haven't you? And that's the blocking that you have from being able to believe or accept that I can do something about this. So he says, how long has it been this way? And he said, it's been this way ever since he was a little boy. We don't know how old he is at that point in time, but he must not be a little boy. He said it's been this way since a child. Sometimes it's even worse than this. It'll throw him in the water to try to drown him or throw him in the fire to burn him up. But, Lord, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I have, it, for me, it settles it for me. You judge for yourself, you decide for yourself. But for me, the information that the Holy Ghost saw fit to give us tells me that the Father has seen this so long, he doesn't know what to believe anymore even where Jesus is concerned, even when he's, the stories that he's heard about Jesus healing people and casting the devil out of people and setting people free and, and so forth. He doesn't know if God's big enough for this or if this will work for him for some other reason. Jesus turns it around on him and he says, if I can. Now, the King James is a little blind here because there is no punctuation in the, um, uh, in the original Greek. But if you look it up, if you study the language a little bit, you'll find that Jesus is making a sarcastic statement. He simply says, if I can. That's what the father said. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if I can. In other words, Jesus responds by saying, this is not a matter of what I can do. And folks, you need to understand, healing is not a matter of what God or Jesus can do. Ever. So this idea that religion, religious denominations put out that, well, God can do anything, that's a worthless statement. Of course God can do anything. But healing is never a matter of what God can do. Ever. Well, what is it a matter of? It's a matter of what does the individual believe. Jesus said, if I can, and then he answers this way, all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to him that believes. In other words, the key to a healing sign, a healing miracle, a healing work is believing on the part of the individual. Now, the father responds with what I think is a pretty low level of response where faith is concerned. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Which says to me that faith doesn't have to be perfect to get results from God. God's not sitting up in heaven checking off how many times you said the wrong thing. He's not sitting up in heaven seeing how many times you made a mistake. He's not tallying up. He's simply looking for a moment of faith so he can respond with his power. That's it. So the father says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And straightway, I'm sorry, verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose. And when, please notice verse 28, And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? Why couldn't we do it? Now, if the disciples hadn't been used to doing it, they wouldn't have asked the question. If it never worked for them, they wouldn't have asked, why couldn't we do it? They would have said, well, this stuff doesn't work. But the fact that they said, why couldn't we do it, tells me that they're used to doing it. Which the father must have known something about because he asked them, the disciples, to cast the devil out of his little boy. 
So there must be some kind of reputation that they're getting because they walk around with Jesus and are part of his ministry here on the earth. There must be some reputation that they're getting to some degree, maybe certainly not to the same degree as Jesus, I'm sure. But some reputation, some kind of name is being made for them that they cast out devils just like Jesus does. Jesus and his disciples both healed the sick and cast out devils. So they came to Jesus privately and said, I, I'm, I don't doubt that they did it privately. They wouldn't want to make a public spectacle out of this. They don't want to draw attention to their failure. But when it's just them and Jesus, they said, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus answered and said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Another translation or another uh, gospel account says, because of your unbelief. How be it? This kind cometh forth not but by prayer and fasting. Now, can I ask you a question? Did Jesus come back and, and have to pray and fast before he found out what the problem was and helped the, helped the father and, and delivered the little boy? Well, if praying and fasting wasn't necessary for Jesus, then what is it necessary for the disciples for? If the praying and fasting does not have something to do with the story and how Jesus corrected the situation, then why in the world would they need to pray and fast? Jesus didn't pray and he didn't fast. That's because he was prayed up and he was fasted up. Praying and fasting is for one simple thing, and that is to make you more spiritually sensitive, less naturally sensitive and more sensitive to the things of the Spirit. Jesus knew what the problem was when the disciples didn't know because he was sensitive in spirit to understand how this stuff works. So what's he saying to the disciples? He's saying, you guys weren't able to overcome this because you weren't sensitive enough to realize what the problem was. And praying and fasting would have simply made... It doesn't change God. Praying and fasting doesn't give you more healing power. Praying and fasting doesn't give you more power over the devil. So what do they need to pray and fast for? There's only one thing that praying and fasting does, and that is to make you more conscious of spiritual things than you are natural things or to bring information to you that you don't have naturally. That's it. That's why the Bible doesn't give you a schedule of when to fast and how much to pray. It really comes down to how committed to the, spiritual, to the things of the Spirit are you to be sensitive therein. Otherwise, the account that the Holy Ghost gave us in the Gospel of Mark is worthless. See, so many times people think you increase power by praying and fasting, and you don't. Praying and fasting doesn't change God. It doesn't change what God has given you. It just makes you more aware of spiritual things. That's it. So what he's telling them is the problem was that you weren't spiritually sensitive enough to recognize how to solve the problem or solve the, the situation. Bring help to the, to the father and the son in the situation. But notice it goes back to the same thing. They said, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it? Now turn with me over to, uh, I'm taking too much time with this. Turn with me over to, um, turn with me to John chapter 5. No, 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 don't turn there yet. Are you, go back to Mark 9. Before you go, let me show you this. Well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just find a place to quit here. I'm not going to get done with this. So I'll just find a place to quit here. Okay, so Jesus says in verse 29, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting, which would make them more spiritually sensitive to see what the problem was and how to fix it. Notice in verse 38, John answered, saying master we saw one casting out devils in thy name and he followed not us so we forbade him told him don't do that thanks a lot john here jesus is trying to get people to act on what he teaches them and john's trying to get them not to because he's not one of their group i want you to understand the attitude that the apostles had we're a special group and nobody's supposed to do the stuff we're doing we saw one casting out devils in thy name and he followed not us, and we forbade him because he followed not us. Notice the man, whoever this unnamed individual is, he, he, the individual, is casting out devils. It does not say, Master, we saw one praying and getting God to, to get results to set people free from the power of the devil. Nope. The man is casting out devils in the name of Jesus. Do you see that? Who gave him the authority to cast out devils? He's not one of the group. Folks, the authority to cast out devils, the authority that follows believing ones, 
is not in some special commission. It's in the name of Jesus. And that name belongs to anybody who will use it. Notice Jesus' response. And Jesus answered and said, Forbid him not, for there is no man, (coughs) excuse me, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name, except he has a special calling and ministry from from me. No. He said, Don't forbid him, for there is no man which shall do, which shall do, the man shall do a miracle in my name that can speak lightly of evil, uh, can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. What I want you to see, folks, is there were people doing miracles. At least one guy that was doing miracles. Jesus calls casting out devils a miracle. There was one guy that was doing supernatural and he was spectacular works that wasn't even a part of the group. Didn't have a special anointing. Didn't have a special call on his life. Jesus hadn't met with him privately and said, yeah, well, I didn't want to tell you guys about this, but there's somebody really special over there. And notice who was doing it. He was doing it. Now, I trust that you know this well enough without taking time to look at it. You remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes. He's one of the rulers of the Jews. And he comes to Jesus in the night because he doesn't want people to see that he's talking to Jesus. But he comes to Jesus in the night and he says, Master, we know that you've got to be sent from God because nobody can do the miracles that you're doing except God be with him. And Jesus answers and said, except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You remember the story? We know that you're come from God. We know that God sent you because of the miracles that you are doing. Not the miracles that God is doing through you. Nicodemus says, we see you doing the miracles. And Jesus said, except you be born again, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. John chapter 5, however, Jesus said, the son can do nothing of himself. But whatsoever he seeth the father, he doeth likewise. Let me turn over there so I, I don't misquote this. Let me get it right. I've got it right in essence, but I want to make sure that I don't leave out something important. Oh, where is it? Verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the son likewise. Please notice Jesus said, the key is for me to see what my father is doing. If I see what God does, then I can do the same thing. Why? Because he's one with the father. You remember also in John chapter 14, Philip says, to Jesus, show us the Father and it will satisfy us. And Jesus said, Philip, have, have I been so long with you and have you not known? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And then he says, believe me that I am in the Father and that he's in me or else believe for the very work's sake. What's Jesus saying? He's saying it's God in me that's the source of the power to do the works. He does not say I'm not doing them. Certainly he's the hand that's doing them. He's saying they don't originate with me. That's why Jesus had to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Jesus is saying it's not inherent healing power or or authority over the devil that I have in and of myself. I'm just like you, but God's anointed me. That's why when he commissioned the 70, he told them to heal the sick. That's why when he sent the 12 out, he commissioned them not only to heal the sick, but even raise the dead if necessary. Now, what is Jesus trying to get across? This is in Matthew chapter 10. What is Jesus trying to get across? He's trying to get across very simply this. When you're commissioned of God to do a work, there is no obstacle that's too great for the equipment that goes along with the call. What did Jesus call us to do? He called us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And these signs shall follow the believing ones. These signs shall follow the believing ones. These signs shall follow the believing ones. Let me close with one last scripture. Turn with me over to Galatians. I think it's Galatians chapter 3. We'll find it when we get there.
It is. It's Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read down to the verse. Get the context of the verse that I'm trying to get to. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Let me give you a little background on this so you understand what's happening. Paul is in the region of Galatia. That region of Galatia is uh, identified in Acts chapter 13. The latter part of Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14, and a little bit in Acts chapter 15. It's where Paul uh, and Barnabas healed the crippled man at Lystra. It's where he stoned left for dead, raised from the dead, goes back into the cities that the people came from. All that region round about there is where he did a number of different miracles and, and uh, saw, the people saw the power of God raise him from the dead. After he leaves, however, the Jews send people from Jerusalem to, destroy, to attempt to destroy the work that Paul has done. Leaders from the church, not these are saved people but people that have not come to the understanding that it's not Jesus and the law of Moses. It's Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. So they're trying to impose upon the churches in Galatia, and they, this happened just about everywhere Paul went. Religious leaders were sent from, uh, uh, well, I say sent from Jerusalem. They came from Jerusalem, but they weren't all commissioned from the church. A couple of times they were, but not in every case. But people not wanting to accept Paul's gospel that Jesus fulfilled the righteousness of the law in himself, in his work, his, his uh, sacrifice, they wanted to keep, keep, keep on with the law of Moses and incorporate Jesus as part of the law of Moses. Well, Jesus wouldn't do that when he was here with them. The Bible says that the first thing that the Jews tried to do is incorporate Jesus into their group, and Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with them. I'm not here to be part of your group. I'm here to fulfill the law. That means you guys better enjoy your time while it lasts because you're on the way out. There won't be a need for a high priest anymore. There won't be a need for any chief priest anymore. There won't be a need for any of the rulers, the, the, the Pharisees or Sadducees. I'm making a way for every person to come to God individually on their own so that nobody stands between them and God. Well, some of the Jewish leaders understood this, and that's one of the reasons they wanted to kill him. Because Jesus is saying, you can have access to God through me. Well, there goes their livelihood. There goes their position. There goes their salaries. So some of these Jews are trying to do the same thing now that Paul is, is ministering, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. They're coming in and trying to destroy the work by saying, you guys, now that you're saved, that's wonderful. Jesus is, is the son of God. This is great. But still, you have to keep the law of Moses because God gave the law to Moses. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you stupid people. Who has tricked you on this? Apparently, he felt like he did a good enough job, a thorough enough job. For them to understand that it's not Jesus and the law of Moses. It's Jesus instead of the law of Moses. And what would Gentiles need with the law of Moses anyway? It wasn't given to them. These are Gentile churches that these Jews are going to. So he says in verse 2. This only what I learn of you. Received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's saying very simply. Did you get saved by the law of Moses? You didn't need the law of Moses to get saved did you? You didn't need the law of Moses to get filled with the Holy Ghost, did you? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? In other words, he's saying, what would make you think that keeping the law of Moses is going to add to you when you've already gotten saved and filled with the Holy Ghost just by faith in Jesus? What's the law going to do for you now? Pretty good question, isn't it? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? In other words, he says, you're right at the point of losing everything you got. Is that how far you're going to go? Verse 5 is what I want you to see. He, therefore, that ministers to you the Spirit and worketh miracles. He that ministers the Spirit, doesn't say God ministers the Spirit. It said he that ministers the Spirit to you and he that worketh miracles among you. How does he do it? Doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The answer is even as God counted Abraham righteous through faith. Now here's the point. I'm going to talk about me. I'm not going to talk about you for a moment. I'm just going to talk about me. I know from my time with Brother Hagen, from the training that I have, from the truth of the word that I know, 
I had no without a shadow of a doubt. There is not one ounce of doubt in me. Or that I will accept that comes against me. I know that I know that I know that I know. That anybody under any circumstance that wants to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I can lay hands on them and the Holy Ghost will come upon them. Now I can't make them receive. I also know that there are only two reasons why somebody having the Holy Ghost come upon them to fill them there's only two reasons why they wouldn't receive number one's either a lack of faith they don't know enough about what the bible says yet or number two they don't know how to yield to the holy ghost when he comes on them and i don't know how to fix both of those very simply if i can say this humbly and i'm not trying to blow my own horn I'm, i'm trying to make a point here so stay with me i know that i can get anybody anybody filled with the holy ghost if they will accept it now, it still comes down to them. I mean, I can't force the Holy Ghost on somebody if they don't believe in it. I can't force the Holy Ghost on them if, if they're not willing to accept it. I, if they have questions, doubts, whatever, I can't change what they choose to believe. But if they want it, and if they're willing to hear what the Bible says about it, and are willing to take just a little bit of instruction on how to receive it, I can get anybody filled with the Holy Ghost. Anybody. I'm not sure everybody has that same confidence. We worked with people in the prayer room because there was a time in our church where people would go to the prayer room and they wouldn't get filled. And that just frosted me because I know if I can go in there, I'll get them filled. Why? Because I know that I know that I know how it works. Paul, by the Holy Ghost, is equating getting somebody filled with the Holy Ghost and doing miracles in verse 5. He says the same thing. He that ministers the spirit to you, does he do it by the works of the law or by faith? Or he that works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Answer's the same for both. That's the hearing of faith. So I'll ask myself this question in front of you. I don't want to embarrass you. Maybe you're in the same category. I would imagine everybody is, but I'll use myself for an example. Why don't I have that same confidence for doing miracles? Now, I know just as surely as I know my name that there are some people that have a special ministry to minister the Holy Ghost to people. I know that. I'm not aware that I have that. What I have, I have from the experience that I had spending time with Brother Hagin in the prayer rooms and dealing with people on crusades and so forth and the knowledge of the word that I have. Jesus has never appeared to me and says, I am giving you a special ministry to minister the baptism of the Holy Spirit to others. Yet I have the confidence. I know that I know that I know that under, uh, under all but the most extreme circumstances, I can get anybody filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm not claiming to have Holy Ghost filling power. You understand that, don't you? You're not hearing what I'm saying and thinking that I'm saying I'm the one that gives the Spirit of God to people. You don't hear that, do you? You understand that God's the one that does it. Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. But he does it through people. Most of the people that were filled with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and at least identified in the book of Acts, were filled by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. I don't have a special ministry of laying on of hands. Some people do. Brother Haken did. I don't. I lay hands on people in faith just like you do or anybody else would. I'm not aware of any special ministry. uh, And if I had one, I would be aware of it. Jesus would either tell me or appear to me or something. He'd give me some kind of information that I had it if I had it. You understand that too, don't you? God doesn't give you something and not let you know what you got. Then why don't I have the same confidence to do miracles? Since Paul, by the Holy Ghost, is equating them, I could. Here's a better question. Why don't you? See, somehow in our thinking, we've got the idea that miracles is some special ministry. Then why didn't the Holy Ghost say so? Or why did the Holy Ghost use that in the equivalent manner... Just as equal a manner as getting somebody filled with the Holy Spirit, ministering the Spirit to them. You understand that that's what that means, don't you? 
He that ministers the Spirit to you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Do you understand that means he gets people filled with the Holy Ghost? That's what ministering the Spirit is. And then he equates it. He says, or he that works miracles among you, which indicates there ought to be a lot of people working miracles among you. How do people do that? And notice they're the ones that do it according, unless the Holy Ghost is being loose in his language. Notice they're the ones working the miracles. Again, that doesn't mean they have miracle working power. It means God's working the miracles through them as they act in faith to do the work. What's the difference? Folks, this is something I'm struggling with because there is no difference. None whatsoever. I can't and will wind up with the same confidence, the same assurance, the same know that I know that I know that I know that I know. That I can work a miracle just like I can get the Holy Ghost to come on somebody. I can't make them receive. Doesn't mean I can make a miracle work no matter what. At least on somebody else's behalf. Nobody can do that. Jesus couldn't do that. Jesus is in his own hometown. Could there do no mighty work? That means miracle. In the city of Nazareth. Mark chapter 6 verse 5. He could there in his own hometown of Nazareth. Do no mighty work. That means he didn't get any miracles. Well, if Jesus couldn't do it and he marveled because of their unbelief, that's why he couldn't do it. He marveled because of their unbelief. If Jesus couldn't overcome unbelief in every situation, then neither are you and I. Just like when I know that I lay hands on somebody, I can get the Holy Ghost to come upon them unless they refuse to accept it. Otherwise, the Holy Ghost will come every time. Why? Because the Bible says so. Then if they need instruction on how to yield to it, I know how to do that. I know how to help them along. Not a big deal, not a hard thing. It may freak them out. It may scare them. It make them, may open them up to the devil saying there's something wrong with you, but we know how to fix it. Fix it in just a matter of a few seconds. Folks, Jesus didn't agonize with the Father to get him in faith in Mark chapter 9. He just told him what the problem was, told him what he could have, and the Father said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So what happened? Jesus healed the boy, cast the devil out of that little boy. All he had to do is get him over into the edge of faith. And I think he was just in the edge of it, to be honest with you. I don't think there was a real high level of faith to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's just me. Let me tell you what I think. Don't know. One of these days I will know and I'll be able to tell you for sure. But here's what I think. I think I'm over in the edge of the stuff that Wigglesworth was dealing with. Because Wigglesworth based his ministry. Wigglesworth never claimed to have a special ministry for either miracles or the gift of faith or anything like that. Jesus never appeared to him. Now, let me qualify that. Jesus never appeared to him to tell him that he had a special ministry. Jesus never appeared to him and said, you have a ministry of laying on of hands. Jesus never appeared to him in the way that he did Brother Hagin to tell him about his ministry or things like that. He never had a similar experience like that. There were times in healing lines and healing meet in uh, Wigglesworth's meetings that Jesus would appear. And any time Jesus appeared, it was always for a specific reason. He would lead him to someone or show him someone or something about that someone so that he got him help. But never, ever, ever, ever did Wigglesworth ever claim to have some special ministry that, that set him apart from other people. And as a result, he was surprised that other people couldn't make work or wouldn't make work what he did with ease. Now, was he called to something? Yeah, without a doubt. Were there manifestations of the Spirit that worked through him that don't work through everybody? Certainly, they were operating through him. I'm not sure about not working through anybody. But you know what the key to his ministry was? John 14. Let me show you. Just simply John 14. Here's why Wigglesworth said that he was able to do the miracles and the works that he did. And he would challenge people. He was called the apostle of faith. And he had daredevil faith. What I call daredevil faith. He would go into a crowd and, and pick out the worst and the hardest situation. I've told you stories about this. But there would be times, one particular meeting I remember him uh, telling a story about. He was in some kind of auditorium and somebody came in late. And this person that came in late was in such a terrible condition. I don't remember if it was bedfast, you know, on a stretcher type thing or in a wheelchair or whatever it was. But he came, this person came in, wheeled in or brought in by other people. And the whole crowd's head turned away from Wigglesworth. He had already started preaching. Their head turned away from him to watch this person come in. And he said it was like a death pall just fell upon the whole room. 
Everybody looked over and with such compassion said, oh. We've seen people like that. We've seen situations where our heart goes out to people. Well, if it's compassion, that can be a strength and help somebody. But if it's sympathy, then it's this syrupy sweet thing that just drags everybody down and drags the whole thing down. Wigglesworth recognized that it was sympathy. He recognized that it was people seeing, well, that's the hardest case you could possibly imagine. What could possibly done, be done for him? So Wigglesworth just challenged the crowd. He kept on teaching for a few moments and realized that if people weren't listening to him anymore. They're watching over here. So he just stopped and he said, all right, now, everybody's had their look at this guy, feeling sorry for him, wondering, oh, my goodness, what's going to be able to be done for this guy? He said, and nobody's listening to the teaching of the word. He said, it's the word that brings results. So I'll ask you the question. Should we heal him now or wait till after we minister? Talking about teaching the word. Well, nobody really answered much of anything, but you could tell everybody saying, do it now, do it now, do it now, do it now. So he went over and laid hands on the guy and made the guy straight. Got up off the, off the, the, the stretcher, the wheelchair, whatever he was in, and he was healed. He went running around the room. Wigglesworth went right back and said, now can we be- get back to teaching? See, that's the point everybody wanted to have a party. But it's not time for the party because they don't have enough of the knowledge of the word to get their answers. He realized he did it basically on his own faith. Maybe got the guy in neutral or recognized the guy was in neutral and would receive it. And so he got a miraculous word. He counted it like it was no big thing. Well, let me, let me uh, amend that. It wasn't that he treated things like this as if they were no big thing. He treated them as if they were commonplace because everybody has the ability to do them. He made no big deal about him being able to do it because he said everybody should. John 14. That's what I was talking about earlier. Jesus said to Philip, verse 9, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father, and how sayest thou? Then show us the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Don't you believe that yet, Philip? Here's his explanation. The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Notice the connection that Jesus makes between words and works. He says it's God in him and through him doing both. God's given me the things to say and God's the one doing the works. Now Jesus is not saying that he's not doing the works in that the works are not being done through his hands. They are. But because Jesus considers himself and was one with the Father, he said the Father is the originating source. He's the source of power. It's not my power. It's the Father's power. But he's doing it through me. So you can at least believe that I'm in the Father by looking at the things that are done through me. He's not shying away from doing them. He's just trying to explain. Most of the time, Jesus wouldn't explain. Most of the time, Jesus didn't stop and say, now, this is not me. This is the God at work. Most of the time, Jesus just recognized, yeah, here's a healing work. Everybody magnifies me as, as the one sent from God to do the work. He said uh, he must have been okay with that. He didn't turn that away. He didn't stop people from that. And he didn't stop it with the disciples either. He didn't stop it in the early days of the church. Acts chapter 14 tells about the works that Paul and Barnabas did after Paul was raised from the dead, stoned and raised from the dead. It says that the people, when they saw the crippled man healed, when they saw the things that God was done, they wanted to make sacrifices saying, Paul and Barnabas are the gods come down to earth to us. Well, if you look at what Paul said, Paul just says, oh, no, no, don't, don't make sacrifices to us. We're men of like passions, just like you are. All we're doing is teaching you that you need to turn away from these false gods and serve the one true God. Now, I would submit to you that most of the modern day church wouldn't consider that to be humble enough. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't don't look at us. Peter and John at the gate, the beautiful gate of the temple, Peter said, look on us. And the man looked at him expecting to receive something. This humility that that most of the modern day church thinks or talks about and, and, and tries to emulate, that's a false humility. It's not a godly humility. The greatest position of humility you can take is I am who God says I am. Nothing more, nothing less. What does he say? Well, first of all, he says I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. 
Whether you realize it or not, that's a humble position in God's eyes. This position that, oh, well, I'm just so unworthy, that's not humility. That's unbelief. That's saying what God said about me is not true. Now, if you want to take that position, feel free, but not me. So Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, the Father gives them to me to say, and the works that the Father in me, that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Believe that I'm joined together with God for the things that you see happening through me, the signs that follow me. That's why Jesus said these signs will follow the believing ones. He wants people to see God in you. This idea that we're not supposed to do anything, not draw attention to ourselves, that's bogus. God wants you to draw attention to yourself so that you can say, it's God in me. In most cases, you won't even have to say that because people will say, wow, we know that you're, we know you. You couldn't do that on your own. Are you out there? Verse 12, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, sounds a lot like what he said to him in Mark 16, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Verse 13, and, in other words, this is connected with doing the works, same works as me and greater works than me, and whatsoever you shall ask to call for or require, make a demand on, in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Those were the basis, those two scriptures Verses, uh, uh, what are the 12 and 13? Were the basis for Wigglesworth ministry. Jesus said we'd do the same works and greater works. Jesus said to do those works, whatever we called for, required in his name, he'd do. Wigglesworth would say things, and, and, and the, the boldness that, he, that, uh, that was evident in him, he said he just got from the word. He didn't get from some special prayer time. He didn't get because of some special vision or appearance of Jesus or anything like that. He said that he just simply believed the word of God. He would look at people and their attitude toward things that were tough for God to do. And he would turn it around. He would say the impossible thing is for God not to hear us. He challenged crowds. He'd say you don't think God's not going to hear us on this do you? I'm reminded of somebody that followed that uh, went before Finney, Charles Finney, who was one of the greatest revivalists known in the, the modern century, or modern uh, age. Whole cities would be changed through Finney's revivals. I mean, people would get saved in such numbers and filled the Holy Ghost in such numbers that there wouldn't be anybody to support the, the bars anymore. Bars would have to close down because nobody would go to them anymore. And there was a gentleman, an Episcopal priest, that would go ahead of him and pray. And Finney found out about it. It wasn't on staff. He found out his name was Father Nash. And Na- Father Nash would go to these cities, just rent a little room somewhere, and, uh, and just pray. A couple of weeks before Finney would show up t- to, in town. Well, Finney started seeing the results that he was getting when, uh, and, and associated with that with somebody told him about Father Nash, asked him, who's that little guy that comes ahead of you to pray? And he said, who are you talking about? So he he checked it out and found out who Father Nash was, what was going on. So he went ahead one time to pray with Father Nash. And he said he was astounded. Finney said, I was astounded to hear this man pray. He said he would pray. uh, There would be times where he would pray and he'd say things like this. Now, Lord, you don't think we're not going to have revival here, do you? Now, some people might think that's arrogant. Some people might hear that and say, oh, that's sacrilegious, the very idea of saying something like that to God. But it wasn't for him. The motive of his heart was very simply that, Lord, you promised that, that if we preached your word, that you'd do great things. You'd do signs and wonders and miracles. So you're not thinking that that's not going to happen in this case, do you? Somebody once said that the most effective way to pray is argumentative prayer. I believe argumentative prayer was defined or identified as argumentative prayer, talked about in that manner, was really pleading your case. Lord, we've got a right here. We've got a right toward this. Here's what your word said. We put a demand on your word. We expect your word to come to pass just the way you said that it would. And to do otherwise would be a slap in the face of God. 
I don't know. I'm, uh, maybe I'm getting old enough not to care. I don't know. But I can sense some things changing in me. I don't know how old you have to get before you feel like you're grown up. I still feel like I'm some of the kid. I'm a, a young kid and there are other people that are older than me than they know what they're doing and I don't yet. But somewhere along the way, that I guess that has to change, doesn't it? I mean, for goodness sakes, I'm almost 60. Somewhere I ought to start feeling grown up. I'm not saying I do yet, but maybe I'm getting closer. But I can sense some things changing. I really can. And it all goes back to the same thing that I asked you before, and not limited to this, but, but along this line. If I have the same confidence, I mean an absolute confidence, and I do. I mean, it's, I, there's no putting it on. I don't have to try to talk myself into something. I just know that I know that I know. I know how to get somebody filled with the Holy Ghost. I just know. Why don't I have that same knowing about doing miracles? Wigglesworth seemed to. From everything that I can read, from everything I can discern, Wigglesworth seemed to have that knowing that whatever he did, he was calling on the name of Jesus. He had that knowing that Jesus would always respond. And Jesus said he would. Whatsoever you call for or require, put a demand on in my name. That's what I'll do. He just believed that. He just accepted it and did miracles like you wouldn't believe. Was God changed? Or have we changed on this end? I think we've changed some on this end. But bless God, I think we've got to get it back. Well, why don't you stand together with us? I've gone long enough.